Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Healthcare Checkup Podcast put on by Browse McDowell. My name is Nicole Thorne, and I'm a healthcare attorney at Browse. And today's session is titled Coding in Compliance with New E&M Guidelines. And I'm joined today by Stacey Struenberg, a senior consultant at Kraft CPAs in the Kraft Healthcare Consulting Division. And Stacy consults with healthcare providers regarding billing and coding compliance, performs coding and documentation audits, and helps educate providers. She has more than 20 years of experience in the healthcare industry, specializing in revenue cycle management, billing, and evaluation and management coding. And prior to joining Kraft, she founded and owned a medical billing company for nearly 14 years. And her previous experience also includes two years as the director of operations at a physician management firm, as well as billing manager at HCA, Hospital Corporation of America. So welcome, Stacy. Thank you. Glad to be here. Good. So uh, you have a lot of background in billing and coding compliance. Um, these podcasts are really meant to sort of bridge the gaps between what we see as healthcare attorneys in the legal world and a lot of the practical side of what healthcare providers deal with uh, in their various spaces. And one area that we see often from a healthcare compliance standpoint is just a, a practice or a healthcare delivery system's overall coding compliance. And today, what I wanted to to pick your brain about and, and get your thoughts on was really this really substantial transition in the way specifically ENM or as as the long term goes, evaluation and management codes um, have changed this year. It sounds like it's it's been a long time coming for a lot of these codes in the way that providers. Uh, select the right level of, there's office E&M codes, hospital E&M codes, various uh, setting codes. And this year, really, the AMA changed the way that coding is determined. And it, it really will have, I think, a substantial impact on the revenue cycle and on providers generally. And um, I think we wanted to just talk a little bit more and dig in, get your experience and expertise on so far what you're seeing in that space. So I wanted to just maybe kick off um, having you share with us kind of the iterations and really what you see as some of the key changes this year. The E&M changes this year that became effective January 1st of 2021 are the most significant changes that they made to office visits or the 99202 to 215 CPT codes that providers have seen in like 20 years Prior to these changes, you had 95 and 97 documentation guidelines that providers and clinicians had to abide by, which was history exam and medical decision making. It was face-to-face -face time, and it had to be 50%, more than 50%, if you were going to code on time, more than 50% of counseling had to be, had time spent had to be in counseling or coordination of care. And there were three tables used to determine that. But now, with the 2021 guidelines, rather than taking into effect history exam, presenting problem, and medical decision-making, it is strictly on medical decision-making. The history and exam don't determine the factor of level of service, but I want to be very clear. Documentation guidelines did not change. Those items still have to be documented because they support medical necessity. They support you know, what a provider did on that data service, but you don't use them 
to level the service like you used to. Now it is all about the medical decision making. You know, in the past, when a provider chose between medical decision making or time, again, prior to 2021, it had to be face to face time. More than 50% of time had to be spent counseling or in coordination of care. But as of January 1st, 2021, the, it doesn't have to be face to face. It is, it includes non face to face time or it work done on that day, um, reviewing charts on that day documenting in the EHR that day. So there's been some pretty significant changes that went into effect January 1st. I will say that AMA did release some technical um, corrections and tried to provide a little clarification on some items. Those were released on March 9th. They're sort of an in addition to, and again, it's just sort of technical corrections and clarifications that they released on March 9th of this year. Yeah. And, and I think that, uh, you know, from a provider perspective and frankly, from a legal perspective, you know, the medical decision making component of E&M coding assignment is sort of the most sticky, subjective element in the past. And I think it will continue to, to be that way. And I, I want your thoughts in a few minutes here on just some recap of what medical decision making is and how it's determined. But from a legal standpoint, you know, the reason this is implicated for us is a lot of times we have providers who um, are going through audits. In fact, we generally recommend proactive audits um, in terms of sending out a sample, a small sample usually of your documentation and your claims to a third-party auditor like Kraft. I know we've worked together with you before on various audits focused on certain codes uh, to really have a third-party assess the value of the documentation, right? Uh, the notion in healthcare that if it wasn't documented, it wasn't done, has been said for years and years. And to some extent, that is sometimes the only evidence a provider has. And so their ability, to your point, I think is it's important to say that just because the history of present illness or the exam are not necessarily considered anymore in determining the level of code it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't need to, to still exist and support the medical necessity of the note, uh, which is often where payers trip up providers in, in payer audits, post-payment payer audits. They deem a particular claim or service not medically necessary, which then in turn kicks that claim to possibly an overpayment. And, and this snowballs in our space because, as you know full well, once you have so many of those, you can really uh, be obligated to do some due diligence and make sure that you don't have an entire coding practice that's based on subpar um, documentation. But as we talk about those, those elements of history and exam really no longer playing a role, at least in the determination of the E&M code level, what are some trends that you think you're starting to see just in the first six or so months of the year with respect to providers' response to this new change? The biggest trend that I see is uh, incorrect CPT level code leveling and the lack of the providers analyzing their data to look for a shift in utilization patterns. Because any sudden shift in a utilization can alert you to potential compliance issues or a loss in revenue. When these 
guidelines became effective January 1st, there was some confusion. I alluded to those, um, the errata and technical corrections that um, was released by AMA on March 9th. And the two of the biggest modifications they did is they clarified that activities that don't count toward a time-based visit and separate, separately reported test and interpretation. But even without those corrections and that technical, the, the biggest trend that I see is providers are confused because a lot of times prior to 2021, if a provider had any kind of suspicion, they could do a detailed exam or they could do a comprehensive history of present illness, things like that. And that counted toward a level. So they had maybe more 99214s. Well, now they're seeing more 99213s. Well, you have to question, why is that? Maybe it is simply because of the documentation that is required for medical decision-making. Maybe there can be improvements on that because if it's truly supposed to be a 214 in 2020, it should be a 214 in 2021. But the documentation now, especially for that medical decision-making, has to be there. It has to support it. Right. And that's good to know. I think a lot of times we look as healthcare executives and third parties at coding bell curve trends. Uh, we certainly know that payers use those to earmark providers that they feel are outside the standard deviation of other respective providers. But as a proactive step, you know, not only educating our own providers, frankly, to something that many physicians have done their entire career, it's going to require a little bit of behavior change, a little bit of habit change, um, and, and some thinking change, but also to your point, not a stark 180 either, because that could also alert uh, maybe some compliance or, or miscoding, under or overcoding for that matter, that Absolutely. either was done in the past or, you know, is now being done today. So when we think about medical decision making, I always think this is the blob, if you will, in the middle of, of E&M coding assignment, because for all these years, the 95 and the 97 guidelines really were very element in what I'll call bullet specific. There were very specific boxes that you had to check. You had to check certain body systems to achieve this level and, and that many for another level. But medical decision making is the squishy part of, of how to assign a code. So would you just recap for us, you know, what what is involved in the determination of a level as we look at it from a medical decision making standpoint? The level of medical decision-making, it, it, well, it has four levels, and it's comprised of three elements. There is straightforward medical decision-making, and that relates to 99202 and 212, which are the basic low levels of new patients and established patients. And I should go back a minute. I failed to mention that 99201 was deleted um, effective January 1st because the, the rationale behind that was if a new patient comes in, a provider is going to have some level of decision-making involved if they've never seen that patient before. So they're like, okay, there's no point. AMA said there's no point for 99201. Those really, it can be anywhere from straightforward to high medical decision-making for a new patient, but there are there is going to be some element of medical decision-making involved. So back to the levels. Again, there are four of them, straightforward, low, moderate, and high. Straightforward is your 99202 and 212. 
low is your 992203 and 992213, moderate 9924214, high 99205 and 99215. And you can see sort of that correlation even between new patient and established patient that, you know, 202-212 is that straightforward and so on and so forth. Um, and there's three elements, the number and complexity of problems addressed, the amount and or complexity of data to be reviewed and analyzed. And that, the 2021 guidelines, the complexity of the data reviewed and analyzed, that's, I would encourage folks to look at those March 9th corrections because they, they provided, AMA provided clarifications on that element alone. And then the last one is the risk of complications and comorbidity of patient management. Right. And I think, you know, in my experience, um, both as an operator in the healthcare space and, and now as an attorney, I think some of the things that I see pop up are, you know, short documentation by providers. And I, I've always erred on the side because nine out of 10 providers are doing this right. It's so critical for providers to, to document the analysis that they go through in their head as they determine the diagnosis code. And by that, I mean, what are the risks? And I think as physicians and providers uh, review a medication list, they review allergies, they review a past uh, medical history, there is an algorithm, if you will, it's probably a customized one for each and every patient that they're going through in their minds that, that say, okay, based on all of these fact patterns, this is what I think is going on with this patient. And I think you know, the risk of complications, the morbidity and mortality of patient management um, and honestly, even the complexity, I think we just assume that the dots can be connected in a patient medical record that tie the list of medications, the list of allergies, all the things that we collect sort of objectively uh, automatically carry over into the risk analysis. And, and there's really not enough evidence oftentimes, I don't know about your experiences, but I see reports from folks like you come back and say, you know, we didn't do enough to connect the dots here. And it seems like what I'm hearing you say is, is because so much of the ENM level is now based on medical decision making, we as a provider group, uh, as an industry, need to make sure we're doing an even better job of documenting all of those things. Because I think, you know, the risk here is that we have made a major shift away from what used to be the bulleted list, right? If you did so many body systems in a, you know, history of present illness or an exam, you, you got credit for some of those things. But now that they don't, quote, count anymore to the extent that they justify your level, that means that it's really based on the documentation and support of the medical decision making. And I found, and, and you can I'd welcome your thoughts on this and your experience, generally what you see from providers in that capacity and their documentation for medical decision making and some maybe any suggestions you have to really boost um, you know their support in that particular area well I agree with absolutely everything you said providers have you know they do this from day one and a lot of the thought processes are in their head and they don't necessarily put it on paper. You know, years ago, I had a mentor that, and, and I don't, it, this sort of stuck with me. She always told me, TDKD, meaning thought did no do. What did the provider or clinician think about each issue? What were their thought processes? What did they do about those issues? What do others need to know about the issue? And then 
what did what did other what others need to know that they they they're going to do about that particular issue um and not only that but you know for to support the the physician documentation to support mdm you know just be sure the there's a reason for the encounter, the, the patient history as it relates to medical decision making. If I've got, you know, an asthmatic that comes in with a cold, well, I can't, there's certain medicines that that asthmatic can't take. Maybe my thought process and my medical decision making included more, you know, same with certain conditions with a diabetic, um, the assessment and plan of care. Did they review any tests? Um, this year, a big thing they released, social determinants. Is the, is the patient homeless? Um, can they afford their medicine? You know, things like that. Do they have support? Any prescription drug management changes? Uh, read, this is a biggie. Reason for any order of diagnostic tests or ancillary services. Associate the labs, you know, that you order with a condition um, link medications to chronic and acute conditions. If there is a chronic condition, um, does it affect that acute condition? And how are you treating that? The, the, Not, if I can interject there too, Stacey, yeah. I, I don't know what you see, but I, I see a lot in plan of care and, and doctors are, are generally very succinct and to the point, um, but I see a plan of care that says levothyroxine in a dosage, uh, MRI, um, scheduled follow-up. And they're, they're very uh, sort of poignant things that have zero tie. I, if I took away just, you said their link. There's no link to the reason for those things. And I know they exist because obviously they went through the analysis, right, to determine that those were the steps, of the action plan they were going to do. Um, but they don't say why, if they're ruling something out, if they're looking for a certain result. And I think you know, a lot of times that's where I see deficient documentation come back in reports, again, from folks like you to say, we know you did the work, you just have to show it. Absolutely. And that is so important because what physicians and other qualified healthcare providers have to remember as a coder, I can't make an assumption. I can't assume, even though I look and I know levothyroxin is a thyroid medication, I can't make any assumptions so it's really important that they link those tests and those medications to the conditions. And they say the reason they're ordering them, because again, when you talk about medical decision-making and supporting that, now you have that assessment and plan, that is your level. You know, all of the other, again, and I want to be very clear, documentation guidelines did not change. You still need to document HPI, history of present illness and things like that. You need to document your exam when it's medically appropriate, you know, that they, they leave that to the clinician and the provider, but that assessment and plan, it really needs to, to say, what did you do about, you know, each condition? What do I need to know about those? What does an outside auditor need to know about those? What does a malpractice insurance company need to know about those? You know, all of this supports why the physician saw the patient that day what they did with that patient that day and what the plan is to continue treatment if applicable. And I will say one of the nice things AMA did this year, there is a table out there called table four and it defined like an acute uncomplicated um, illness versus, you know, a, 
um, a, a, a acute complicated or stable chronic acute illness with systemic sy symptoms, they went to the, the trouble of defining those. They also define things like independent historians. So there's a lot of information that, and a lot of work that went into putting those 2021 changes into effect. Right. And, and for once, we actually have some resource, I think, as some of these changes come out, which uh, is helpful. And I do encourage our audience to look into those resources. There's a lot of material here, and, and I know we want to kind of wrap things up. So just a couple of takeaways. I think from my perspective as a healthcare attorney, you know, we're always emphasizing compliance. And as much as it costs money, it costs time. And sometimes you have to open a Pandora's box that you maybe didn't want to open the alternatives in some cases, meaning you get a payer audit and, and that becomes a slippery slope are, are often uh, harder to defend and in an endless um, list of work and opportunity and sometimes financial impact to your practice. So we recommend a compliance program. All, all of our healthcare providers should have one Obviously, they don't all look the same, and it can vary based on size and specialty and delivery and those types of things. But part of a compliance plan really should include uh, routine and proactive audits just to, you know, you don't know where you're at if you don't measure that with an objective analysis. And I don't know, Stacy, if you have some thoughts on timing, what to look at, and maybe how to prioritize what, what your team recommends. I would say at least initially with these changes, I would do quarterly audits in-house, but I would also, since the, these are the first changes we've had again in 20 years, I would recommend a third party do a baseline um, audit. Uh, so depending on the number of providers, that would determine the number of records needed to make sure that documentation is there. Analyzing the data. Again, we talk about that bell curve. You know, where are you as, as this year as opposed to last year? Because any kind of sudden change in types of services um, that you're providing can impact, you know, compliance and reimbursement. You know, if there is a incorrect billing to a government program like Medicare, Medicaid, that can result in substantial liability, as you can speak to under the False Claims Act. And you, it, it's really interesting the the term deliberate ignorance is listed in CMS's website. So, you know, there are instances where they feel like you should, you know, or you should know that something's wrong with your billing and coding practices. And audits, they allow you to take that detailed look at the billing and coding, and it helps guard against making the same mistake over and over again. And that can be pretty costly. Audits can also alert providers to a loss in revenue to issue, you know, such as issues like you were talking about, undercoding, lost charges, insufficient documentation. Maybe you're not getting the level that you deserve based on the work provided and the 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 care that the patient needed simply because the documentation is not there. Right, exactly. So I think, you know, to, to sum it up, really, you know, now is the time, right? We switched over to, you know, the new determination for E&M coding levels uh, effective January of this year. Uh, we're six months in, uh, probably time for some benchmark process to occur in most practices, most healthcare delivery systems that use these codes, uh, just to see where they're at, right? And maybe Absolutely. even compare those results to where were they at in past years and are there shifts really to just kind of digest 
the practice pattern and changes, and also the content of the medical record documentation. So thank you so much today for joining me on this podcast. Uh, we went right into the weeds here pretty quickly. So hopefully our audience uh, has a couple takeaways here that they can use and, and some steps they can do to improve their practice operations. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us, and we appreciate your time today.